As we come to our time in God's Word this morning, if you would go ahead and start turning to uh, the first letter of Peter, um, and we're going to be uh, going over the first 12 verses in that this morning. And uh, as we begin to think about Peter, I must confess that um, this is one of the letters that hasn't been uh, something that I've spent a lot of time in up to this point. It, you know, our, our Bible is, is a big book. And it's, it's very easy for us to, to pick our favorites and to spend time in, in certain books or, or looking for passages that we think answer the questions that we seem to perennially have. And, and through that time, uh, Peter has been one that I must admit has, has kind of been neglected uh, by myself. Um, and, and sometime in the last year, I was, I was convicted that I needed to pick a book or a, or a passage, an area to kind of focus on and, and have a more in-depth study in. And I, I can't tell you why I ended up picking First Peter. Um, I really don't have a reason for it, but I'm, I'm really glad that God and his providence led me there. And, um, and also in, in Brian asking for someone to, uh, to preach today gave some motivation to actually follow through on, on my plan. And we, we find that Peter has a way of, of laying out the faith and the Christian's approach to our lives that is, that is challenging. And I hope that this morning you will be challenged by what Peter has to say to us in the first 12 verses. Um, but it's also comforting. We see so much of Peter in the Gospels and Acts. He's one of the main characters that we see. And, and we often see him to be almost on a roller coaster I think of, of Peter being the one that confesses, you are the Messiah. Uh, and we, we're at the mountaintop, and, and a couple verses later, Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. As immediately behind uh, confessing the Messiah, he, he rebukes his Savior, his Master, for speaking of his coming sufferings. Um, when we think of Peter at the transfiguration, you know, in awe, and he gets to see he gets to see Jesus in his heavenly glory, and, and we see him just kind of stick his foot in his mouth with, let us build altars to the three of you. And it's like, that's, that's not what's really going on here, Peter. Um, and and we, we see in, in Peter's first letter that, that he ha, he's repented of that former view when he rebukes his own Savior for the coming sufferings. Um, he's, Peter has been changed. And um, I, I, I didn't even know where to start searching for this, but I wonder if, if Luther would have called Peter in the Gospels uh, a theologian of glory. Um, he's looking for the Messiah to come in power, to execute justice against all the enemies of Judah, and to sit upon the throne reigning in glory. We notice the change in Acts that Peter is no longer speaking the way he once did. He he sees and, and values the necessity of the Messiah's sufferings. And then by the time we get to the letter of, of Peter, we see that he's learned Christ's words that we also will participate in the Messiah's sufferings. Peter, by this time, is truly a theologian of the cross and no longer a theologian of glory. He writes a theology that could be called foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. But as Paul says, to those who are being saved, it is the power and wisdom of our God. And I think this is important because naturally we're all theologians of glory. Uh, go look at a Christian bookstore and see that all of the bestsellers are self-help books, 
dressed up in Christianity. And we fall prey to it far too often because it can be subtle. Um, we don't think that's where our, uh, or we, we often are asking why things aren't going well for us when we seem to be doing things right. Why are we dismayed that our life doesn't seem blessed? It constantly seems that things are just going against us and we ask, why do I struggle with my health? Why am I lonely? Why is it that despite so many objective good things in my life, I'm not joyful or happy? Why am I still wrestling with the same sins I was five, 10, 25 years ago? Why do I feel increasingly alienated? Not only from the world, but also from my brothers and sisters in Christ. Is my faith able to withstand the, a hostile world, and can I survive persecution? This morning we're going to see that Peter has comforting words for those wrestling with these very questions and a host of other struggles. Um, some of his words are obviously comforting, while others are going to take us some more time to work through and see the comfort in them. Nevertheless, he starts out this letter with good news. He's laying the groundwork to guide his readers as they live in the shadow of the cross. And as we'll see, part of the answer is to embrace the cross as part of our lives, not just as a symbol of our Messiah's work for us, but as that which we have been called to. There is rich blessing in the cross, blessing which Peter wants for his readers. So with that as a way of introduction, let's actually read our passage this morning. Follow along as I read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the, per through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Uh, the grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray for the Lord's help in, in understanding this this morning. Our dear Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we come to you this morning, um, to your word, and we, we humbly ask that you would be with us this morning. Lord, I pray for, for myself that you would help me to, to speak clearly, 
to speak true words, Father, and that these words would be both comforting and challenging to us this morning. Lord, shape us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter opens this letter with both a simple and a packed salutation. He identifies himself in the simplest terms, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he addresses his audience as elect exiles throughout Asia Minor. Uh, in her commentary, Jobes, Jobes, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce her last name, if I'm butchering it, I'm sorry, but she comments that Peter writes to elect foreigners, elect as to their relationship towards God and foreigners as to their relationship with the world and society around them. I think this is helpful. Our relationship toward God is one of belonging as his chosen people, but our relationship to the world is not one of belonging. We are no longer of the world. We live here, go about our business here, and unless Christ returns, we will die here. But it is a strange and foreign place to us now, even if we, unlike Peter's audience, are in our native country. Still, in an ultimate sense, we do not belong. And my focus this morning will not be on the introduction or, or the salutation that we're going through. We're going to focus most of our time on verses 3 to 12, but, but I can't help but just point out the way that, that Peter brings the Trinity into his salutation. He says that our, our election, our choosing, is a Trinitarian one. It's according to the foreknowledge of the Father, by the Spirit sanctifying us, and unto covenant with Christ and obedience and the sprinkling with his blood. All three persons are involved and are being chosen. Our salvation is Trinitarian. And it's always good to remind ourselves of that, even if that isn't our focus this morning. And just the fact that it's worked into his, his salutation tells us just how, how this was part of the apostles' lives. They saw it everywhere. Everything that they did was... was saturated with this understanding of the Trinity. And then he closes his, his opening with, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I thought it was helpful, another commentator, Robert Layton, makes the point that Peter has expanded the traditional Jewish salutation of peace or shalom. And, and his argument is that Peter is now saying that as Christians, we have a peace that is brought to us by grace. Grace is the source of the peace that we now have. We are at peace with God, and we are at peace with one another through grace. This, this is truly what he calls the Christian version of that Jewish greeting. So much for the introduction. I, I want to now spend our time in, in verses 3 to 12. And as we spend our time there, this, this all is really one thought, uh, this blessing of our God for what he has done for us. Um, unfortunately, our, our ESV kind of chops this up a little bit and makes it think like it is all one extended thought. But, but as you look at it in, in the Greek, we see that it is. So he, he comes and he says, this is a blessing of our God for what he's done to us. And this is always where we want to start. This is where he starts the letter. And just um, remember as you read uh, the rest of the letter of Peter that this is... This is the foundation, right? This is what we build everything else upon as Peter will get into everything else. Um, I think that's important uh, because often the way we preach, we break it up uh, to an extent that it's hard to follow and remember what came before. 
And that's part of why I'm actually preaching uh, the whole passage this morning of verses 3 to 12, because it is one thought. And um, it would have been really easy to take verses 1 and 2 and have an extended sermon just on the Trinity this morning. Uh, but, but I want you to see that this, this, it's not a simple thought that Peter has, but it really is one thought from verses 3 to 12. And, and from this, this blessing, there's three things that I want to pull out and, and focus on for us this morning. The first is he is blessing God and praising God for our rebirth to a living hope. Second, he is thanking and praising God for the purifying trials or tests and our assured passage through them. And finally, he is praising God for our privileged position within redemptive history. So first, Peter identifies the God we bless as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Since the incarnation, that is how we identify our God. To us, he is now Father, because we are in Christ and so are made adopted children. It reminds us that we are only brought into God's presence through the work of our mediator, Jesus Christ. We praise him that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We who are dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians, have been given new life and a rebirth. And this has been done by the great mercy of the Father. And we see this as the description of Christians, that we have been reborn. Indeed, we have been remade. Paul calls us a new creation. As Christians, we are not merely new and improved. Christians are not remodeled or refurbished or renovated. We will be sanctified, and that will exhibit itself outwardly in spiritual fruit. But at the core, the Christian has been given a new life. And as we saw in the salutation, or the opening, and it is reiterated here, it is all from God. He is the one who chose, and his mercy is what motivates the giving of this new life. You do not earn a new life. It is a gift. And this new life is to a living hope, a hope that is real, that will not disappoint. We are not raised to a wish that we will do better than we have done to this point. The hope is living because its object is living. For we have been raised through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We hope in the one who has defeated death and is alive Our hope lives as he lives, for we place our hope in him. This is what makes it more than vague optimism. The quality of our hope as living reflects the truth of this hope's object. Because he lives, our hope placed in him is alive. And this is further described as an inheritance. This hope knows what belongs to it. And Peter reminds us that it is God himself keeping this inheritance for us. We are not obtaining it by our own strength, but God's might and power keep this for us. Peter describes the inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And as we think of the use of inheritance throughout Scripture, we see that that, um, the many examples cannot be described this way. The land of Canaan, uh, the, the supreme inheritance that we see throughout Scripture promised to Abraham, cannot be described this way. After they finally entered the land, the land was made desolate because of their disobedience, which was defiled with their idolatry and was taken away from them. Yet, the Old Testament is still going to help us figure out what this inheritance is and to know what Peter means. If we think of one of the 12 tribes that didn't get a portion of the land, what would that tribe be? 
It's the tribe of Levi, the tribe that was tasked with the care of the tabernacle and from whom the line of Aaron, the priest, came. And in Deuteronomy 18.12, God says that Levi has no inheritance among his brothers. And then he answers, why? Because the Lord is his inheritance. And so here Peter is telling these Christians that God himself is their inheritance. And this is further uh, solidified later in the letter when Peter calls Christians a royal priesthood and a holy nation. He's identifying us with the priestly tribe whose inheritance is God. We're following in the line of priests. If we have been born again, we are receiving our inheritance of God himself. And of course, God cannot be perishable, defiled, or fading. Again, Job summarizes these as saying, the inheritance is untouched by death, untainted by evil, and unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. And surely that is our God. There's no flaw in him, and, there, and thus there is nothing lacking in our inheritance. Let that drive you to say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, we looked at this inheritance as being kept in heaven for us. What else is in heaven? We know, we know that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Our hope is placed there knowing that all we have been promised will come to pass. Yet further, Peter goes on, that if it weren't enough that our inheritance, our inheritance is being kept for us, we actually ourselves are being kept and guarded for the salvation that will be revealed at the end times. Uh, another commentator, Edmund Clowney, summarizes it in this way. He says, not only is our inheritance kept for us, we are kept for our inheritance. It would be small comfort to know that nothing could destroy our heavenly inheritance if we could lose it at last. The wonder of our hope is that the same power of God that keeps our inheritance also keeps us. It shows us that it's all of God. By his mercy, he raises us to a new life. He gives us an inheritance that is under his watchful eye. And further, we are guarded so that we may not fail to attain salvation in the end. For what is that salvation but to be in God's presence without his holiness condemning us? It is to be with our inheritance, our living hope, namely Christ, and not to be consumed by his holiness. And this is why we join Peter to praise our God and Father. And finally, don't mistake and think that our faith contributes to our being guarded. Our faith is in the one who guards. Our faith lays hold of him. He is the one who keeps and guards, believing that the one who raised Christ from the dead can make good on his promises. Our faith rests on him. Next, starting in, in verse 6, Peter seems to, to, to bring us back down from this mountaintop that we've been on. But I don't think if we read it correctly, that's actually what he's doing. As I said earlier, this is one extended thought of praise to our God. So he starts out in verse 6 with our, with our rejoicing, which makes sense based on what we've just covered, right? We rejoice in our inheritance being kept for us. We rejoice in the work that God has done in the new life that we have in the living hope. But then he turns to griefs and various trials, and we, we may feel some whiplash from that. Like I said, from being at what seems like a mountaintop to all of a sudden we're talking about 
suffering and grief. But Peter is going to turn this as well into praise. After expounding all the wonders of the previous section, he concedes that for now, if necessary, we are grieved by trials. And we see, though, within this passage that these trials are not without purpose, and they end. So the good news is that they have purpose, and they end. The bad news is that these trials will be intense, and I believe that the little while he mentions actually extends our entire earthly life. So first, why do I see that, that I think this takes our entire earthly life? And it's because he mentions, um, he mentions the coming of Christ, the end times. He's, he's characterizing, he's saying that this is going to be the character of the Christian life until Christ returns. Yet he calls it a little while for what is, what is our few years here on earth in comparison to eternity. That's how he can call it a little while. And I think when we're too focused on our lives here, trials can seem insurmountable and the time can seem too great. But the more we focus on eternal things, the more this world will seem but a vapor. That something that is here today will be gone tomorrow. But there again, praise be to God that we are eternal and we will spend eternity with our Savior and we see the intensity of these trials just in his comparison with gold. That gold is, is tried by fire. So I think we can expect that these, these trials can be intense. But to get to where this is a praise and a hope, we must look at what is the purpose of these trials. And he says that it's that the genuineness of our faith can be found to result in praise and glory and honor at Christ's return. And it doesn't take a lot of reflection to see that this analogy makes sense. For why do we test things, whether other people or objects of value? It's to find out if it's genuine, right? Are the things what they claim to be? Put it to the test and its true nature will be found out. That is what he speaks of with gold. Gold can hide impurities until it is melted down. Then those impurities will show themselves. And I imagine that when we hear this, this might strike fear into us. What if my faith is found to be lacking? Or with the analogy with gold, if it is found to be impure? And while on the one hand, I don't want to gloss over warnings in Scripture to examine ourselves, I really don't believe that is Peter's aim here. He shows full confidence that our testing will result in praise and glory and honor. He's assuming the genuineness of his reader's faith. In other words, this isn't Peter commanding us to be true or faithful. Rather, he's describing the Christian experience. So as Peter has this as part of his praise to God, we need to know how we praise God for trials. Nobody likes tests or trials. Almost nobody. But why is that? And it's driven by a fear of failure. Yet if you're confident in the material, the testing can actually be enjoyable. Or it can be a further learning experience. Or if your project is excellent, you don't actually have any problem putting it forward for scrutiny or criticism. And I believe this drives us back to the earlier verses. Our inheritance is kept. Further, we are kept. The assumption is we will pass. And I believe as evidence for that, Peter reminds them that though they have not seen Christ, they love him. And though he is not seen by them now, they still believe in him. 
and their rejoicing is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And here's the evidence of the genuineness of their faith, the genuineness that will just become even clearer as with trials and testing. For without sight, they love him and they believe in him. And just a final thought in, in throughout Peter is we don't know exactly the trials and tests that he's speaking of. Um, as you read the commentaries, a lot of people try to speculate and most of their speculation is based around when they date the writing of it to decide whether it's political or whether it's just ostracism or what it could be. But I, I don't think it much matters. For the theme that he has seems to be that people must constantly choose the way of the cross throughout Peter, not just in this passage, but as you read on, that they must constantly choose the way of the cross and be willing to suffer rather than to renounce Christ. I think it's a fitting theme given what we know from Peter in the Gospels. Being obedient to Christ will cost us the approbation of the world and maybe even our safety. Yet Peter calls us to follow our Savior's example and to suffer rather than to disobey. So then the, the, last, the last reason that Peter gives for our praise and our blessing to God is what I called our place within redemptive history. Um, we, we have a privileged position in comparison to all that came before Christ. This side of the incarnation, we get to read the Old Testament in the light of Christ. And we find that what was written there is much clearer through the lens of Christ than it ever would have been to the prophets of the Old Testament. This is what all of God's people have been looking forward to since the first announcement of the gospel. Right after the fall, God says that he will send a seed of the woman who will defeat the seed of Satan. But we don't get a lot of details Further throughout scripture, those details are filled in and it becomes clearer and clearer. Yet, we see from the religious leaders in Jesus' time that it could still be missed. For they did miss it. As we've been studying Luke with, with Pastor Brian, we see that the very people who should have known that this was the fulfillment of scriptures were the ones that rejected him and cried for him to be put on a cross. And indeed, the, the writers of the New Testament are quick to point out that Christ was the fulfillment of the prophecies. He was the one that the scriptures were pointing to. Read through the Gospel of Matthew, read through the Gospel of John, and see how many times they say that this was done to fulfill prophecy or to fulfill the Word of God. We get to see that Christ was the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And further, Peter tells us that we have been served by these prophets. Not that they didn't benefit from their own word of God that they brought to God's people, but we much more so. We are in an incredibly privileged position. And yet, even in within this, Peter kind of surprises us. For what does he, how does he describe Christ's work? Christ's work was not all glory, but it was first suffering. Again, the way of the cross. Christ humbled himself. He took, as Paul tells us, and, and Mark pictures for us, the form of a servant. 
The king of glory assumed the frailties of his own creation. He would, he would experience everything that we do except for sin. He knew hunger, thirst, pain, sickness, rejection, loneliness, frustration, loss, and disappointment. For as the Heidelberg Catechism tells us, his whole life on earth was a life of suffering. And this isn't just referring to this, the passion on the cross, but to his whole experience of humbling himself and coming down for our benefit. And it's interesting that Peter says that the Spirit was prophesying this ahead of time. Again, the religious leaders had no excuse for missing those, for missing this. We see from just a few examples, Isaiah, especially in chapter 53, the suffering servant, that he would be stricken and beaten, that he was accounted little. He wasn't he wasn't given his due recognition. We hear David's cries, which foreshadow the cries that Christ himself will make of suffering and loss. And I think also we see within the drama of the Old Testament itself, Abraham was not given a promise and taken straight to the promised land. Indeed, he was told that his descendants were going to suffer. They were gonna suffer for 400 years in Egypt. And they did. And then they sojourned for another 40 in the desert before finally they got to reach the promised land. That whole narrative is just an example played out for us of Christ and his, and his work for us. But thankfully it didn't end with suffering. After suffering, glory. When his work was completed, he was raised. After revealing himself to many, he ascended to heaven. And after the ascension, he is seated at the right hand of glory, God the Father himself. And in his reign, he sent the Holy Spirit to testify to his accomplishments in our hearts so that we can believe them, cling to them, be risen to new life, and look forward to our inheritance. We need to recognize this pattern of suffering and glory. It's, it's the pattern that I think Peter is going to hold to throughout the rest of this letter. And it's, it's the pattern that we're going to experience. We're going to undergo suffering. But don't forget that after suffering, there will be glory. Don't try to short-circuit this and skip ahead straight to the glory. Even our suffering will be used to demonstrate the reality of our faith and to purify us for the day of Christ's return. So with all that, what do we make of this? What do we do with this passage this morning? How does it change us? Well, I think first, if you here this morning are a believer, you join with Peter in praise. You join with him in praise for what Christ has done for us in, in giving us new life. We join with him in praise for the promise that we will come through the trials and we recognize the privileged position that we have. The, um, the two places in which it says, and you rejoice, while those aren't commands, they are very searching questions. Do we rejoice? Do we read this and rejoice? Embrace the good news and let it strengthen you to follow the way of your Savior.
Lean on him when you're forced to decide between the path of least resistance and obeying Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't have faith, Christ is not your savior. You don't have a living hope. You're not looking for an inheritance. Put your faith in Christ. He's the only, he's the only living hope that is available to us. Everything else will perish. Um, and that living hope will, will power you through. It will give you the strength to go through what Scripture is honest enough to tell us will be hard. Thankfully, Scripture doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't tell us that life is going to be easy. But it does tell us that our Savior is enough to get us through those. And remember that after suffering, there will be glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you this morning for this word that is sobering, um, that is in some ways hard, and yet at the same time so very comforting. Father, we know as, as our forefathers told us that we, we live in a veil of tears, yet we rejoice. We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. For we have a living hope in our Savior Jesus Christ. We have a hope of being with him in eternity to praise him and to glorify him. Lord, we pray that we would start that even now, that we would start that even today in our lives. And we'd start it right now as we are about to sing your praises. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.